Welcome to Tube Talk, the show dedicated to helping you become a better video creator so you can get more views, subscribers, and build your audience. Brought to you by vidIQ. Download for free at vidIQ.com. Oh, yes. Welcome back to another episode of the Tube Talk podcast presented by vidIQ. I am your host, Viper, the man about tech. And as usual, in my co-pilot chair, I got Dan the man here. What's up, Dan? How you doing, sir? I'm good. How are you? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. It's so low-key. I love it. I am good, man. Thank you. How's your week been? Yeah, my week's been good. I've gotten a lot of work done. It's been also just a, you never have one of those weeks that's just everything's normal. And yeah. but almost too normal. Like something's about to go horribly wrong. It's not Friday yet, so... I'm just kind of holding my breath that everything stays this normal. One more day, man. One more day. So, Dan, there's not really much going on in the YouTube world. There were a couple of things uh, that they talked about in their latest creator insider video. The first being that I guess now when you go to a channel page, uh, when you go visit a channel that you are a member of, there will be membership avatar. Like you actually see your avatar on that channel page if you are a member. Now, I guess this is the gradual rollout because I'm not seeing it yet. And I don't think you're seeing it yet. But this is interesting. So what are, you, what are your thoughts on this? I have a few thoughts on this. So if this is the update that I, I've heard about and I've actually seen a little bit of controversy about. What this means is that, first of all, we should just explain the difference real quick. On YouTube, you subscribe to a channel for free. It's unlike Twitch, where you, if you subscribe, you're, you're giving money. But YouTube's version of that is called memberships. So you're giving the channel money in exchange for usually badges, emotes, and other perks that that channel yes. offers. It differs channel by channel. So the idea here is that you can go to a channel and see... Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. It's, it's, I think this is how it was phrased. You can see who is a member of that channel. Correct. If you're a layman, if you're just anybody, you can go to this channel and see little badges saying, oh, Bob is a member and Sue is a member. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. That's correct. Okay. So when I first saw word of this, there was a lot of people very upset because they said, well, wait a minute. What if I don't want people to know that I'm a member of a certain channel? What if I don't want that to be public facing information? And I don't know what's come of that yet. Usually when YouTube talks about things like this, rolls them out slowly, that's the kind of feedback that comes in. And then YouTube makes the decision as they get to full rollout mode, maybe we shouldn't opt everybody into this by default, or how do we want to address this? Maybe maybe on your end as the user who's a member of somebody, you can go, don't show this info publicly. We definitely have those kinds of features already. So if you subscribe to channels on YouTube, if you want on your own channel, you can put a bar on there that says channels this person subscribes to. And I like I take that off immediately because I don't really want anyone to know that, you know, it's not really anyone's business. And right. it's kind of weird that that would be. Public. So if that's the change, as I understand it, I'm a little bit in the camp of like, maybe this should be optional from the start. Like YouTube loves to put things out there and auto opt in. And it's something that I think they've heard loud and clear by now. A lot of us creators are saying, can you let us do the opposite? Can you let us opt in and not already be in the program first? And I do hope that's what we're what we're looking at here. Yeah, um, like I said earlier, I think it's a gradual rollout, so you might not see it yet. So YouTube may still be working on some things on the back end that we're not privy to. So we'll have to see how that happens in the days and weeks ahead. But you make a good point because I also have that option turned off where I don't want people to know what channels I'm subscribed to. Just to have some sense of privacy, you know, people don't need to know every single thing that we're doing on the Internet. So just to have the option to keep that stuff private, I definitely agree with. Well, there's one thing I have right now, and that is a tab 
so I'm logged into to YouTube, right? And I'm on my own channel. And because I'm on my own channel, I have a new tab called membership. This is, I hadn't seen this before we started talking about this today. And it's really cool. It shows the perks that I have. So if it goes down from the badges I have to the emotes and then the different perks I set up. And then from under those are the community posts I've done exclusively for members. And I have done a number of them. So I can scroll through every single community post I've ever given to members. I assume that if I had given members uh, additional like private videos, that those would be here too, just because everything else is. And if that's what's about to happen, if you as a member can come to my channel homepage, click membership and see everything you have access to, that's awesome. You know, having a place to take all the exclusive content and just funnel it. Hey, I'm a member and I just want to see what's for me. If that's not fully rolled out yet, then I hope we get it soon. But from as a channel manager, I'm definitely seeing this tab and I'm very excited about it. Yeah, like you said, it would be nice to have like one place where all that membership content is aggregated. So when somebody codes to your channel and they want to search for that particular content, it's right there on that tab. So that's definitely a good look. Another thing, Dan, that was updated apparently is the YouTube copyright tool. Um, the tool that creators can use to take down videos creators that upload their content uh, without their permission, different things like that. According to the YouTube Creator Insider channel, as of right now, actually as of October, the copyright tool has been updated to whereas it will now automatically prevent content that has already been taken down from being re-uploaded. And apparently all creators have access to this and it's going to happen automatically. So if you took down a video and somebody tries to re-upload the video that you've already taken down, this tool should stop them dead in their tracks and it should automatically stop them from re-uploading it. So that's, that's a good look. Yes, uh, I think so. Any any tools that we can get that work on their own and, and keep you from having to constantly play whack-a-mole with people trying to steal your content, that's awesome. Like, and, and here's the thing, why, why reinvestigate that? You know, that's probably, this is probably saving YouTube a whole bunch of time. Why do we need to reinvestigate this issue? We've already settled this once. Yeah. So very excited about that. Now, I don't know how much you want to get into it, but I want to bring up something that you t- we talked about off air a little bit as it relates to the copyright tool. You said that, if you found out that somebody was uh, taking down your videos and they tried to fight you, you you may or may not want to fight them back because of the information that you'd have to give up in order to pursue that fight. So I understand if you don't want to go into it, but we can talk a little bit about that. So the way this basically works is if you get in your notification box, like, hey, somebody used one of your videos, we think part of one of your videos or all of it or whatever, you then have the option to go ahead and you can contact the creator yourself and say, please take it down. Or you can just go through YouTube and file a a claim basically and say, this is my content. This person stole it. And then you go through a process which you have to put in some personal info. And just because I don't like having to do the paperwork, I don't use the tool. I have a few videos in my inbox that are like, hey, people took this from you. And when you look at the views on those videos, you look at the reach they have, it's virtually non-existent. And it's because it's kind of silly, right? Like I already uploaded that video. That video already had its like time to shine and re-uploading it on your channel isn't going to get you anywhere. So because it takes time to fill that all out and I have to disclose a lot of information at the same time, and then it's not really going to do anything. It's not going to save my views or anything like that. And maybe this is different for people depending on your situation. I just ignore it. I'm just like, okay, it's there. And the one thing I've always thought felt about this tool is that of course I don't want people to re-upload my content. And if YouTube system is smart enough to know someone used your entire video and didn't make any adjustments whatsoever. If it's it can see that, then take it down. You have my permission to just take it down on my behalf. I don't want. I know it's there's a legal process behind that. It can't. It's not that simple. But I wish it were. Yeah, that'll be cool. 
It's interesting to hear you saying that because I talked to Marquette Brownlee about this a year ago, and he doesn't take down any videos. Uh, he doesn't care if people uploading content. And I mean, obviously, you're Marquette Brownlee. You're the world's most popular tech reviewer. I mean, you probably don't care because I think people will immediately know if it's not you that's uploading the video. So I can understand that he doesn't really care much. But I know other creators who do care a lot more about people who are stealing their content. And it is definitely a viable concern among a bunch of creators. They don't want their content re-uploaded without their permission. I mean, why would you? No. We can't have that. So it's good that the copyright tool is in place, but people are going to abuse things all the time. Unfortunately, that's just the reality of the situation. But it's interesting to hear the different perspectives about some creators that care and then some that don't care, this and that and the other. It's true. Everything on YouTube is nuanced. Last week, we talked about the dislike button. And since that conversation, I've heard plenty of valid reasons from respected creators as to why they feel like the dislike button should like the dislike button's not going away, by the way. It's the counter next to it. Let's be clear but why they feel like that counter is so important. But when you take a look at some of the features around that that YouTube has implemented, for example, comments. If enough people hit like on a comment, it surfaces to the top, kind of like a Reddit post. And if you were to take that content and comment in theory and post it similar to where the like button sits, think about how much more valuable that would be. The top comment, the comment that everybody else is like, yes, to. If it's a comment like this video clickbaited me and it's completely inaccurate and I can't believe how many views this video has and 100 people have agreed with that statement and that becomes the top comment, that to me says way more than the video having 50-50 dislike, you know, like to dislike ratio. There could be any reason, that, especially if you look at any news channel, any news channel, you'll notice their dislikes are incredibly high. At least while yep. you can still check that. But it's slowly, we're losing the dislike counter. So I think it's still there on right at time of recording this. I see it on a video right now. You can look and see. And the thing is that the, with the news content, the title and the thumbnail are delivering on the promise of the video. And that's all I care about. Am I clicking on something that is delivering on its promise? And so when the dislike counter gets abused like this, when the button gets abused like this, it's not helpful to me as a viewer. But the top comment is, if that many people agree with a statement and that statement tells you one way or another, that means so much more. The dislike counter, I think, is a relic of the past. Yeah, it's funny because I have not heard any noise about that since it went announced last week. As I predicted accurately, mm-hmm. no one is caring about that no more. Nobody's talking about it. People are like, oh, this is a big deal. But I hear crickets. Nobody's talking about this anymore because y'all understand that Viper understands it was never that important to begin with. No, nobody's talking about this anymore. So it is what yeah. it is. It will slowly vanish, and it, that will be the way YouTube always was. Exactly. So, Dan, you know that uh, a lot of creators start YouTube because they want to, at some point, or they hope to at least, make it a full-time thing. Maybe it might lead to a career change, or they want to become full-time content creators. And this week on the episode, we have my man, Renee Ritchie, who used to be a full-time tech journalist, and now he is a full-time YouTube creator. So we're going to be talking to him about that transition and what it's been like for him and different things like that. Dan, what is your experience talking with creators about trying to make the transition? We've talked to so many creators about wanting to just start YouTube and make it a full-time gig. And the more creators we talk to, the more you realize just how many of them are doing it. And it feels more and more like an attainable goal. Still, though, and any of these creators we've spoken to will tell you, this is not a switch you can flip. You can't come on YouTube and just be full time uh, and, and make money. You can definitely, if you want to dedicate, quit your job and dedicate all that time to YouTube. But it takes time to nurture and grow this. Yeah. But we've we've had conversations recently with other creators where they talk about how you can make money without being monetized on YouTube, without having AdSense enabled. And from there, once you get AdSense enabled, there's steps you can take to continually make income with the content you create. And I just appreciate all of these 
different folks we've talked to on tube talk on the vidic youtube channel taking the time to like come out and share their experience because we need to bust these myths of like if you're good it's a money hose like oh i know how to edit videos you know i'm i i know let's say you you have a production background that doesn't necessarily mean you're ahead of the game you you are ahead of one aspect of the game right <laughs> but there are a lot of aspects and that's what we're seeing and that's what these conversations shine a light on Exactly. And we're going to get into that more with Renee. But yeah, I love the way you said that. Just because you have like experience in a certain area doesn't mean you have the whole YouTube book down pat. You don't. There's a lot of this YouTube thing that people just don't know getting into it. So while it's nice that you have that aspiration of becoming a full-time creator one day, don't think it's going to happen like your first in your first year or first few months. Nah, nah, not at all. It's just not that realistic. But you know what? It's time to talk to somebody who has actually done it. So with that, let's roll to the podcast. All right, and welcome back to the Tube Talk podcast presented by vidIQ. And this week we have world-renowned tech content creator Renee Ritchie in the building. What's up, sir? How you doing? Good, man. It's good to talk to you again. I always love doing that. Man, you know I love talking to you, and I appreciate you taking the time to be here with us this week. So thank you. Of course. When me and you get together, we normally talk about tech and Apple and everything up, but I want to do things a little differently this week, Renee. I want to talk about your transition from being a world-renowned tech journalist to now being a full-time YouTuber content creator. So let's start there. I think, uh, I think it was back in 2019 that you made the transition from journalist to full-time creator. So talk about the things that led to you making that transition in your life. Actually, it was a little worse than that. It was 2020 and it was March. Oh. It was the beginning of March. Oh. And I wanted to give my, I worked for Future. They had just bought Mobile Nations a year before that. They already owned the Nantech and Tom's Guide and Laptop. And, you know, they were one of these giant media conglomerates out of the UK. And I decided it just, it wasn't for me. It wasn't the same vibe. Before that, we'd been a, like a privately held company and it was just very different. But I wanted to give them a month's notice because I thought there'd be an Apple event in March. And, you know, those are like a big deal for tech publications. But little did I know the whole world was going to lock down that month. So I, I gave them my notice. I gave them four weeks notice. Everything went into lockdown. And then I suddenly didn't have a paycheck anymore. Mm. At that point, I panicked and thought I better, I better take this YouTube stuff super seriously. What made you do that? I mean, was it just you wanted to get, to get away from that company or what made you want to get into the uh, content creation realm for yourself? So a few years earlier, I was originally hired by Dieter Bone, who's now, uh, you know, executive editor, some fancy title at The Verge to run iMore, which was there. They had a publication per vertical. So they had Android Central, iMore, Crackberry, Windows Central. Uh, we had Nokia Central for a while. We had just a bunch of different verticals. And I got hired to do the Apple vertical for Mobile Nations. And Dieter left and went and co-founded This Is My Next and The Verge. And uh, my new boss was Crackberry Kevin, uh, Kevin Mitchelluk. Brilliant, brilliant guy, super focused. And he helped herald this whole era we're in now of affiliate revenue. You know, back then that didn't really exist. And he turned Mobile Nations into this affiliate revenue monster. And that got the attention of other companies and eventually Future bought them. And I helped, I forget how long ago it was, five, six years. He was so busy doing all that. I took over some of his editorial responsibilities. So I ended up being editorial director for all those sites and trying as best as I could to bring them into the new era of being like, you know, one big network of publications because everyone was so used to being run like small little indie verticals. But I, I missed creating. I missed seeing my name up on the website 10, 20 times a day. And I was interested in YouTube. I was seeing everything that was going on in YouTube. We'd hired Michael Fisher. He left Pocket Now. We hired Michael Fisher. He started Mr. Mobile. You know, one of my, he's one of my favorite YouTubers. 
Phil Mickinson, who'd run Android Central, started Modern Dad. And I'm like, this YouTube thing looks super interesting. So I started a show called Vector for Mobile right. Nations, where I started doing like YouTube videos. And I'd always had to do YouTube videos for iMore. We always had to do the iPhone review video and the iPhone event video and all of those. And I do like a video, I do a video, but it wasn't like every week. It was like three, four times a year. And I'd shoot them with, you know, mutual friend Mark Wim, who worked for Mobile Nations back then, who's one of the nicest guys in the world because he survived Daniel Rubino for, you know, four or five, six years. Uh, <laughs> and he shot all these iPhone videos with me in New York and, and San Francisco. And we'd get like millions of views on like iPhone SE unboxings, but then we wouldn't do a video for three months. You know, it was, it was really weird. So I started doing Vector on my own and Kevin didn't have any faith in it. He said, like, if you want to do it, do it on your own. I don't think you'll be very good at video. You know, I think you should just be, keep writing, but I'm like, no, I'm going to do this. And I knew it wasn't Michael Fisher to start, but I knew like, you know, Michael Fisher probably didn't start being Michael Fisher. So I figured, you know, you got to, you got to start somewhere. So I just started doing video, you know, I, I've been doing the iMore podcast. It's like, you know, I'd see you there sometimes. That was always a lot of fun, uh, but that was just like a live stream and it wasn't any, like, you didn't have to sit down and think about the video. You just talked about the news. Same with Mac Break Weekly. So I started to teach myself, you can go back and look, they're all online still, they're all horrible, but you can go back and look and like, I didn't know what lighting was, I didn't know what cameras were, I didn't know what editing was. And so every like few months, I would pick something to work on, whether it was like how to shoot better, how to light better, how to get better audio, how to do better pacing. And then when Future came in, they had a real honest conversation with me and they're like, it would be better for us if you just did voiceover for videos on why it's good to buy a Nintendo Switch and we'll slap those up in our custom player. We'll run house ads on them. You know, that would make us the most money, cost us the least money. And I'm like, thank you for being honest with me, but that's that's not where I see my future. So, <laughs> <laughs> wow. So I left. Uh, that's understandable. So I want to talk about what are some of the things that you being a journalist, what are some of the things that you can take or you took from being a journalist that helped you toward your transition with YouTube or getting into YouTube? Yeah. So, I mean, it's some of the stuff we talked about before, there are these weird transitions. Like when I started blogging, traditional publications didn't take us seriously. You know, they were kind of offended that we were there, like the Wall Street Journal and the LA Times and the New York Times and all the big magazines, Forbes and Fortune. They're like, what, what are these bloggers doing here? You know, they don't know what they're doing. But bloggers had become like really competent in Gadget and Gizmodo and sites like The Verge. They'd all built up until they were like super hungry and they knew the business and they were super smart. And, you know, by the way, now Joanna Stern, who started with Engadget and The Verge is, is at The Wall Street Journal. So like, you know, times change. Yep. And YouTubers were starting to come into things too. And they were having the same problem that bloggers had had. That was like people didn't take them seriously. And I think part of that was just because they were new. And I think part of that was either jealousy or misunderstanding. Like typically, even in blogs, you had like a hierarchy. You had an editor, a managing editor. You had a lot of traditional infrastructure in place, a firewall between advertising and editorial. You know, it's like there's no such thing as like a sponsored review. If you heard the word sponsored review, you would blacklist that company, never do any business with them again because your credibility was like there was just no way to ever have that be credible again. A totally different vibe. And there was some jealousy as to how independent YouTubers could be, how they weren't working like 24-7 to make money for some big overlord. You know, they, they got to enjoy the fruits of their labors. But also like the same way some bloggers were good and some bloggers were terrible. Some YouTubers were good and some YouTubers were terrible. Like no fact checking, no sourcing, incredible sensationalism. 
a lot of fake contests, you know, just to get high numbers, but then never like deliver on their promises or like real, like there was a lot, a lot of sketchy behavior too, like not unique to YouTubers at all. But if you have a bias already, it sort of feeds into it. It's like, I don't know what's happening here, but it became like super serious. You'd see people like Marquez start to show up at these events and he would get more views per video than a television show would get viewers. And he was also being super serious, like as much as CNET started a channel and then Gadget started a channel and, you know, the Wall Street Journal started a channel and they were learning how to YouTube. He was like learning how to like he was going to business school and learning how to build his empire and learning like how to source things and how to fact check it like Everyone was learning. It's like almost like Android and iOS. They started in opposite places, but they were all learning from each other. And then we got to a place where it's just like, I felt like what I was doing wasn't on YouTube. Like YouTube, when I started, was mostly just reviews. Like it, it was very, it was either reviews or it was people who would just like get up and talk. And like sometimes it would go, like it was fun, but it would go nowhere sometimes. And I was really used to doing like what you would call traditionally an opinion column, like Walt Mossberg did all the time, you know, and what you see on the, in the opinion section of magazines and articles, the back page of Macworld magazine, those sorts of things. And I just, I didn't see that on YouTube. And when I want something and I don't have it, I usually tend to try to make it. This episode of Tube Talk is brought to you by vidIQ's channel audit tool, a sort of report card for how your YouTube channel has been performing. When you're in your YouTube studio, the channel audit tool can be found on the left-hand side once you've installed vidIQ on either your Chrome or Firefox browser. As long as you've authenticated your channel, clicking on channel audit will give you a bird's eye view of your videos from the last 30, 60, or even 90 days. I personally use this tool to look for patterns with my content. What types of videos are currently getting the most views per hour? Which videos drove a lot of viewers to subscribe? What types of videos are my competitors creating and how do mine compare? What are the search terms bringing people to my channel in the first place? And if this is sounding like a lot of questions, well, that's probably because I ask too many questions. But that's why I love this tool, because I can get answers to all of them and more. You can access the channel audit tool for free when you download the vidIQ extension at vidIQ.com. I wanted to ask, because I was taking a look at your your channel, and just coming from the perspective of someone who looks at a lot of channels, right? You look at yours, and you started, you said in March of 2020, right? Yeah. So your first video has just over a year old, and it has over 700,000 views. And when you see that, and you see your thumbnails and your titles, everything's super strong. You're like, as, just as a creator who has no background on you, it's like, oh my gosh, like this person gets it. Like, Tell us about the early days for you on YouTube. Obviously, you have you mentioned a lot of different experiences uh, in and around YouTube. Tell us a little bit about that journey. Yeah, so one of the, like, and Viper already knows this. He's going to laugh at me as I say it. But, like, I spent 10 years not just writing about Apple, but trying to learn everything I could about Apple. There's a lot of people who report on Apple but don't understand Apple. So they'll say, like, oh, they're just doing it for the money. Or they, like, they ascribe non-Apple motivations to actions, and it leads to really bad narratives, like really incorrect storytelling. And I didn't want to be like that on YouTube. I just want to come on YouTube and do everything wrong. So I wanted to study YouTube the way I studied Apple. And that meant like trying to understand YouTube as a company. Because every company, like they're not a monoculture, they're not a mono brain, but they have goals, they have, you know, agendas, they have things that work and don't work. And once you start to see what motivates them, you can start to get an idea why they do what they do. And I just started relentlessly watching everything I could in like Daryl Eves and Nick Nimmin and Dee Nimmin. I started like soaking that stuff in and watching it over and over again. Because many years ago, I was studying, you know, a bunch of other stuff. And the teacher said, the secret to my success was to go back and do everything over and over again. Because every time you do it, you remember something different, but also different people ask different questions and you learn different 
facets of it. And because like you could hear something about a thumbnail and not think about it again. But if you hear it over and over again, you hear someone say, what about this? And at the same time, I had a friend, an old friend named Dave Wiskus, who I met at Macworld 10, 12 years ago. And he was a, an app designer at the time. He was working with John Gruber on Vesper, which was a note-taking app. But he, we also started podcasting together. And, and so he got into selling podcast ads. And then he started making friends with YouTubers, educational YouTubers, and he started selling YouTube ads. And it was for like Wendover Productions and Legal Eagle and Real Engineering, really education focused channels. And he kept telling me like, one, go indie. And I'd, I'd always go to like these events and like John Gruber and Ben Thompson and Dave Wiskus would say, go indie, stop building empires for other people, start building empires for yourselves. There's all these people like who just live to suck money out of creators, you know, who want to monetize and exploit creators. And you might as well do that for yourself. And so when I left Mobile Nations, I was already working with Dave. He has a company called Standard and I started working with them too. So I got to hang around all the time with Devin Stone, who does Legal Legal and Sam, who does Wendover and Half is Interesting and just all the people there. And they are legit like YouTube next level geniuses. So my channel was like, the aesthetic for my channel was overly motivated by educational YouTubers. And I still have like the text at the bottom, which is very educational YouTuber on the thumbnails. And the designer who worked with them is a long old friend of mine too, Simon Forgotten Towel. And so he worked with me on this stuff. And that gave me, I think, a huge advantage. And just, I didn't learn faster, but I, I, I didn't make as many mistakes as I would have on my own. Yeah, I think you definitely had the advantage of being a journalist beforehand as you uh, made the transition into YouTube. So in your experience, Renee, talk about the difference between being a YouTuber and being a real journalist outside of YouTube. So I don't think there should be as many differences as there are, because I think in the end, like it's your job to serve an audience. Mm -hmm. And I think people on both sides of YouTube and journalism forget that. And I think too often in journalism, people start with a narrative they want and then cherry pick facts to deliver that narrative. And I think a lot of times in YouTube, the last thing people even think about is fact checking or sourcing. And, and that's, again, like why I was happy to have educational YouTubers around me, because like they have reference sheets at the bottom of their videos with like everything and like where it comes from. And I think that I tried to do a hybrid of both. Like I wanted to make videos that were entertaining, that people wanted to watch, but I wanted them to be super well sourced super well-grounded, super well-referenced, and highly accurate. Like, for my entire career, I've never wanted to be wrong on the internet. Like, it'll, it just kills me when I get something wrong on the internet. So I, I came to, like, this, what I hope is, like, this synthesis of, I call it, like, candy-coated educational videos for tech, where, you know, they have, like, the thumbnail you have to have, and they have, like, the editing you have to have, but they provide real value. Like, I just want to provide value, more and more value every video. Gotcha. Now, this might be the same question, only reworded a different way, but I'll act anyway. Do you find that your audience on YouTube is different from the audience that you used to target when you were doing journalism, like for iMore? In some ways, like in some ways, I love the YouTube community even more because especially when I, when I started and blogging was young, it was really cutthroat. Like everybody just wanted views and YouTube is so different than Google. Google SEO, you live and die by it because you can disappear off. If you disappear off the front page of Google, you might as well be off the internet. And like, and that really is keywords and optimization and all these things that don't matter on YouTube, but really, really matter on Google. And also like YouTube has perfect knowledge of everything that's on it where Google search does not. So you can have like real low value search results and you have people like basically rewriting each other's articles. And back in my day, they would like rewrite the entire thing, bury the sourcing at the bottom if they put it in at all, just so that you'd never click out of their page, you know, cause time on page was a thing. 
And YouTube, even more than podcasting, is such a community. Like if I watch, if I listen to this podcast, no podcast client is going to show a bunch of related podcasts on the side. They'll show your other podcasts. But if I watch like Viper video on the iPhone 13, it won't, sorry, your podcast, Vipe Drive on the iPhone 13. It won't show me like Gruber's iPhone 13 podcast and the Macworld iPhone 13. Po- but YouTube, you know, I can watch your video and there's like four or five other videos on the same topic on the side. And that means that it moves the audience around. Like it, it's a real raises all ships sort of environment. So I found YouTubers to be like super generous, super sharing, super kind, and really willing to help everybody succeed because they knew it at the end, it helped them succeed. You touched on something that I've been trying to get through the minds of creators for a long time. And uh, I know we're talking about journalism and everything, but this is going to come out a little left field. Can we elaborate on this, though? So you just said that the recommendations help all ships rise. There's a lot of creators who get really frustrated when they see someone covering a topic and they wish, oh, gosh, darn it, like they stole my idea or I can, now I can't do that because they're doing it. And I've been trying to tell them, no, this is a good thing. This is someone bringing attention to it. You want to expand on that a little bit? Yeah, sure. And you know, that, it probably helped me to be around a lot of educational YouTubers there, too, because they have a saying, nobody owns facts. You know, like nobody owns the facts. Everybody can make a video on anything. You can't steal somebody's script. That's still plagiarism and copyright infringement. But like, you know, if you want to make a video on the world's tallest building and I want to make a video on the world's tallest building, nobody owns that idea of like the world's tallest building. So it's free game. And our job is to make the best version of that video, but then also target it specifically for the audience that we want to nurture and we want to build up. And maybe my take will be very different than your take. Like maybe you're doing the structural engineering of it and I'm doing the aesthetics of it and Viper is doing the impact on Sky. Like there's so many different perspectives that we can bring to it, but nobody owns that topic. And it's kind of great. Like if I do a video and then four hours later, Marquez does a video, MKBHD does a video, maybe I'll be in his sidebar. And then like millions of people who would never have seen my video might just glance over and see, oh, what's this? You know, I still want to learn more. What's this other take on it? So I think it's fantastic. Definitely. So I'm curious, obviously, I've been highlighting throughout this podcast that you come from a traditional tech journalism background and you transitioned to be a YouTuber. But how have you changed your content to make it more YouTube digestible for a YouTube audience? Because I think we could both agree, Renee, that tech added foundation is very mundane and boring. Okay, when we talk about spec rundowns and different things like that, tech is boring. And we both know you cannot be boring on YouTube. So talk about how or if you change your content to make it more YouTube watchable. Yeah. So, I mean, the nice thing about YouTube is that there are, there are so many different audiences and so many different needs. And you can have like, I'm not saying that like Steve from Gamers Nexus or like Hardware Unboxed is boring, but like I just couldn't sit there and run 18,000 tests on the latest NVIDIA card every week. You know, but there are people, there are millions of people who want to watch that every week. So they found like this audience for them that will watch like 30 minute videos on running the same 15 games on every graphics card that comes out. Or you're like, we have friends who will do like why I bought the 14 inch MacBook Pro, why I bought the 16 inch MacBook Pro, why I returned the 14 inch MacBook Pro. Because there's there are people who are desperate to see every single version of that MacBook run through every different test. So that's definitely an audience if you want it. I like to tell stories. And I think it's like the difference between pure reporting journalism and like magazine writing or narrative reporting, you know, where you want to tell a story, you pick a point of view, a character almost, and then you go through it. What I had to learn a lot was the structure of YouTube is either different or changing, or maybe it's continuously changing. And there's a really good example because it's not just us. Like Disney's had to learn this with streaming too. In a movie theater, people are pay their ticket, they're stuck in there. They're gonna like most people don't walk out. So you have 
you know, 30, 60 minutes to tell an anti-hero story or, um, you know, heart of gold story where someone starts out unlikable and becomes like this hero. But on streaming, they found out that people clicked off immediately. Like it's like, oh, this kid's a brat, click. Or, oh, she's terrible, click. So they had to change the whole way they did their movies to sort of streaming audience. And we had to learn that years before they did. So the traditional tease, you know, like you want to have your lead, but then you want to build it up. You want to get people to keep watching. But like in a modern YouTube world, if you don't reward that click immediately, they're off to something else. There's so much content, so much competition for everybody's eyeballs and time and attention that you have to be really considerate. It's not that you're like buying attention, you're buying consideration every few seconds, like every five to 10 seconds in your video. So someone clicks on it, you really have to think. And I think a lot of creators, I don't want to say get this wrong, because like you can use YouTube to host artistic creations. That's great. Like it's free hosting. But then people get upset that the artistic creations don't get views. But like you're doing something for you. You're not doing something for an audience. And you've got to understand going in. Like I make videos I know are not going to get views. Like I do videos on education and accessibility and enterprise. And I know going in, they're not going to get the views of like an iPhone 14 rumor video, but I accept that. I never get mad about it because I know. And if I'm doing a video just for my own artistic needs, that's a video for me. You know, it's not going to get a ton of views. But if I'm doing a video for an audience, I have to think about it like from the audience. What does my thumbnail say? Is it enough to like stop them in their tracks as they're flipping through their phone or they're glancing across their computer? Is it going to stop them? Are they going to look at the title? Is the title enough to make them curious? And then they're going to click on it. And then right away, are they going to enjoy that experience? Because if they're not, YouTube's got a bunch of sidebars. It's got a bunch of stuff below the, the video as it's playing. And those are super easy for them to click if I don't tell them what they're going to get immediately, like reward that click. And then as they're watching it, I have to keep doing that. I have to break pattern. I have to do all these things so that I have to like create curiosity loops so that every five to 10 seconds, they have an, an excuse, like a reason to keep watching me. And that's an entirely different structure than just a traditional essay that you would be taught to write, you know, like in college. So it's a whole like inversion uh, of thinking and a real, I think it's a real selfless way of thinking too, if you want to be successful at it. Damn, this magic gave a YouTube masterclass in like five minutes. Jesus, Renee, woo! Of it, man. Go ahead, Dan. <laughs> yeah, I agree with everything you, you've just laid out. I'm thinking about this from the perspective of like putting myself back in the shoes of when I first started, right? Because I made a lot of these mistakes. I did not reward the click when the video started. I wanted to tell the story. I wanted to tell it my way. And I grew up watching traditional media. I grew up watching Disney and, and all these things. So I thought, oh, well, I know how to tell a story like that. I'm going to do my own version of that. And my retention was awful. So there's like two schools of thought. It's like, well, I can learn how to improve this and, and get my videos to get more views. Or I could be bitter about it. I could be upset. Like, oh, I want to tell the story my way. And I feel like my job as a YouTube, as someone in the YouTube education space is to help people like understand like there's a new way to tell stories. Yes. And you may not love it. It may not be easy. But once you figure it out, it's very, very rewarding. I'm not even sure what my question is here. I just, I, I guess, expanding on that idea of people being resistant to that because it's it's not exactly how they imagined content creation would be. Yeah, I think it's like, it's a few things. Like one is nobody likes to make something and then not have people pay attention to it, especially like our generation grew up with cameras everywhere. It's like the third perspective. None of our parents' generations knew that, but like we are almost all the stars of our own reality TV show and we like to think we get high ratings. That's like our <laughs> assumption. So it hurts if we don't get that. 
But I also think like there was a lot that I didn't understand when I started that made a huge difference to me. And I think there's like a lot of blame, like it's always easier to blame other things. And especially like the algorithm ends up being this catch-all scapegoat for everything. It's like, oh, the algorithm is burying me. The algorithm is not rewarding me. Uh, the algorithm is not doing this or that. And one of the most powerful things I learned, and this came from Todd, who runs Discovery at YouTube, fantastic guy. If you haven't watched him talk, he's got a bunch, there's a bunch of videos on YouTube creators channel. He's done a bunch of talks at like VidSummit. Like he just said the take away the word, the algorithm, just get rid of it and replace it with the audience. And once you do that, like once you really understand that you're not at the, like the mercy of some faceless techno beast that, that exists just to stomp on your hopes and dreams, but you're nurturing and creating an audience. And that audience is nurturing and creating your channel at the same time. It's like a symbiotic relationship. And once you understand that I'm not thinking about what's algorithmically good, because that can lead you down all sorts of dark patterns but what's good for my audience? I made a video, my audience loves it. What's a video that they would love watching next? What's the next best thing they're gonna love? What would they like to see that they would keep? Like It's that mythical goal. You want them to click, you want them to watch to completion, and you want them to immediately wanna watch another video. And if you think about that mechanically, yes, it's CTR and it's AV, AVP and average views per viewer, APV, that's too many initials. But it's those things. But if you think about it mechanically, you're, you're making a mechanical product. But if you think about it in terms of we have this relationship, you know, we're growing it together. How can I be of service to you? How can I make things that, you, that you'd love? It's so empowering at the end of the day. Exactly, man. Just wow. Just everything that you are highlighting is things that I've tried to explain to people over the past year about how you need to understand what the audience wants and needs and how to adapt and adjust to their wants and their needs. Because again, it's not about what you as a creator want. It's about what the audience wants and needs from you as a creator. And once you understand that, you can go a long way with that. So I uh, appreciate you uh, putting this insight down, Renee. Definitely. No, it's easy. Like, it's like one of the things also, it's like people get really upset that they can't make the video they want. And I like to, like, there's this weird double-edged sword where people want to be creators, but they don't understand that it's a job. Like as much as it's an art, it's also a job. And if you like, I want to be a, a chef, I want to have my own restaurant. That's great. But like, you've got to make a menu. And once you make a menu and you get regular customers, there's now expectational debt that you're going to make great stuff on that menu. And they understand if you experiment, if you have seasonal items, there's like all the stuff you can do. But if you make like a Shanghai dumpling restaurant and then randomly you start serving like Calabrian pasta and people come in, they're like, this is not why I came in here. I'm not ordering anything. Maybe I'll come back tomorrow. You can't be mad at them. You built this restaurant, you built this clientele, and now you chose like to go against what like everybody's expectations. But on YouTube, people think that's fine. And I'm just like, we have like it's a deal. Like, you know, you you signed up for this. I signed you up for this. We have this obligation to each other. So like whenever someone says niching down, to me, it's not really niching down. It's like, I built this audience, you built my channel. We have to keep that going. You're here if I experiment, if I start to grow, but I can't like whiplash you every three videos and expect you to be happy about it. If I do it, I got to know going in that you're going to, you're not going to be happy about it. Lately, we've been talking a lot about this sort of thing and we've been coming at it from the perspective of audience personas slash avatars. Have you run through any exercises? Like, can you tell us a little bit about your audience avatar, who you target your content to? Daryl yells at me about that whenever I talk to him because like I didn't come from a traditional YouTube mind space and I know it's bad. Like you tend to think of like I'm making videos for people like me and that's never really true. The revelation to me came was like I started making videos about Apple and I realized that's bad. You know, that's that's limited. I need to make videos for people who love Apple, you know, and not love it in, in terms of like, like everything they do. But they're people who appreciate the products or, or the company direction 
but they're people who enjoy hearing about what Apple is doing. And that's a wider range than just like making videos about Apple just feels soulless. You know, like it's a company, it doesn't like, they can make their own videos. They got their own channel. I don't have to do that. But if I make videos for people like me who are like, they find something that really resonates with them about Apple, whether it is the way that they focus on their products or the way that they focus on their strategy, all of those things, that's what I want to service. So like if, if I can explain something, if I can communicate something, if I can help, I just try to figure out what people will need. Like, how can I be of service to them? And then I try to make those videos. And I know it's a terrible answer to an avatar question, but <laughs> maybe one day I'll get there. Not at all. I've heard a lot of people describe their avatar and I hear them and they, they describe themselves almost to a T sometimes. And maybe that's the best audience avatar you could hope for because you're making videos that you're obviously passionate about. You're If you're making videos that you would watch, you know, and it's working, I mean, that's the best case scenario. Yeah, you can't do it. Like, again, like not to not to be mean to anybody who wants like, because you hear niching down a lot, but like, you've got to love what you do. It is too hard to do this if you don't love it and you won't stick with it. And then you'll get frustrated. Like if you just, I'm going to pick a category based on popularity. Some people can do that. Some people can just chop wood because they know they have to chop wood, but a lot of people can't. So if you pick something you love that you would do anyway, it just gives you so much, it gives you an advantage when you have to do it every day. So Renee, you talked about a lot of things that you've learned since you've been on the platform. Is there anything else that kind of confuses you or are you perplexed about YouTube that you would like to learn more about the platform? I think it's gotten to the point where I'm just trying to understand. It's not really a thing. It's just, it's more like psychology to me now. I really need to understand better like audience psychology. And a lot of that has been changing the way I think about things. And I, I routinely tweet about it because like, that's how I, I keep notes. I find like when you can, when you're forced to put something down into however many characters it let you use now, 160 or whatever. It really makes you wheedle those down. And so like, I want to make sure I don't try to extract value from my audience because that always ends up being like a very short-term policy. I want to increase value. I want to provide more, you know, not like The Rock, give the people more, but I'm not saying not like The Rock. You know, I want to, I want to find ways of everybody benefiting. You know, I think that's like understanding what they want to see, how they want to see it, the form they want to do it. And a lot of it is just like people talk about data a lot. I used to, my old career, before I even was a journalist, I did product marketing for a huge data analytics company that did just market basket analysis and all this stuff. And analytics isn't answers. Like you can look at analytics and invalidate any opinion you want to have. Like it's, it's to really understand analytics, like you have to figure out like the classic saying, you know, I ask people a question, they say they don't like it. Is it that they don't like it or that I have not presented a compelling argument as to why they should like it? And you can successfully market on either of those strategies. So for me, it's like looking into it and seeing, should I be editing like Sniper Wolf? Like, you know, is that best? Do I want to hold people's retention? Or is doing that creating commodity content that's lessening my bond with the audience? Because I'm, I'm training them to have like a, a TikTok relationship with me where it's more about snappy content and less about me as a creator. Or should I be going for more you know, long form vibe, like someone like Alana Pierce, or you just sit down, talk to people, do a variety of things. And the connection is entirely about the creator. And it, it hurts at first because your videos will go up and down a lot. Your uh, Charlie, he has like eight names, Charlie Moist Penguin Critical, uh, you know, where he puts up like two videos a day talking about arm wrestling or, or something or slap fighting. But, you know, he's got like a million views per video just sitting there with like an earplug and a computer in front of him talking to it. There's so many people succeeding in so many different ways. I'm still only two years, I'm less than two years into this. I don't know what my ultimate way is going to be yet. So I'm just testing 
like to go back to it, I pick one thing and then I work on it. So like I worked on lighting for three, four months and I was working on editing for retention for three, four months. And ultimately I might choose not to, but I want to choose not to, not from ignorance or because it's hard or because it's different. I want to like get as good as I can, you know, like get to a point where I can maintain like 70% retention on every video if I want to, and then decide, is it worth that? Or is it worth having lower retention, but a better audience bond? So that's sort of like the stuff I'm playing with these days. All right. So I want to dig a little bit deeper in there because you, uh, you just talked about editing and retention and different things like that. Now I've watched you go from making longer form videos to shorter form videos. And I think you're doing a few longer videos again. So can you talk to us about how you attack your content in terms of the way you shoot your videos, the way you edit your video? Because I also hear you talk about the term killing your darling. So can you go into all that for us real quick? Yeah. So in a lot of that was what was like inspired by uh, Logan Paul's editor, Hayden Hillier-Smith, who's really, really smart about that kind of stuff. And a lot by uh, Jimmy, Jimmy's editor, CeeLo. Uh, he's famously does the Mr. Beast gaming channel and he's just like a, a beast. Retention and duration are enemies. You can keep retention for short videos, but like when you start looking at people and like I do very different content than Mr. Beast for sure. And everybody always mentions him and I'm sure that's incredibly you know, uh, exasperating to him at this point. But when you can keep like 70% retention for a 15 minute video and get like six average of 16 views from every viewer, that's like next level goals, you know, like that's the star in the moon. And there, you can't apply those things. Like if you see someone on top of a mountain, you can't assume they just ran straight up to that mountain. You have no idea what sort of path they took to get there, but like you can see somebody up on that mountain. So like if you're smart, you start to figure out what lessons you can apply to you and they may not be direct and they may not be one-to-one, but you can look at those things. So for me, it really was like, now my philosophy is my videos should be as long as possible, but no longer or or as short as possible, but no shorter. So I want to have really good amount of content. And you can do things like Hayden does where you put like your cat, your phone, your video game console all around you and you watch your video. And the minute you're distracted, like, oh, that's an exit point. Or um, Patty does some really good videos too, where he talks about how people, like his Sniper Wolf video is really, really good. And I think that was actually based on a CeeLo talk from Clubhouse where he talks about like you remove exit points. Like when are people going to exit your video? And often it's like, bridge words. And lastly, the minute you say lastly, everyone knows that people leave, but also, okay, next up is this. Why do you have to put, okay, next up is this just hard cut. The next thing is already playing. Nobody has time to hit that out button. So it's all those things. And yes, it breathes less. It's a little less human, but TikTok has trained us to be a little less human and we're competing with all those eyeballs. So I will make a video and then I'll go through and I'll cut it. Like I'll just cut out all the bad parts. I'll get the A-roll cut and then I'll watch it through. And if I'm distracted or I think it's not critical information, all I do is like make a compound path, mark it Nebula and kick it off the timeline. And it'll stay in the Nebula cut for that video because Nebula is a whole different beast and I can still have everything in that version. But the YouTube version ends up being the, the shortest possible version of that video that I can make. Now I want to get into this a little bit, just talking about editing and maintaining retention. Can you describe what you mean by by Nebula? Uh, so Nebula is like a, a part of standard. We have a, a streaming video platform that we put videos on as well. Typically, I make a Nebula cut for all my videos so that people who are more interested in me than I'm just watching a video, they can see like the longer form versions of all my videos there. So that if someone wants like the director's cut, hmm. I guess, or like the expanded version... They can go there and watch it. But like YouTube is less tolerant of that because if you leave like a bunch of expositions or maybe like I make a really lame joke that people who really know me will get, but like the larger YouTube audience may not appreciate. I just take all that stuff out. And that's like killing my darlings because 
I love some of those geeky references. I love some of those, especially like tangents. Like one of the things that people that really annoy people on YouTube, some people think it's really good, but you have to be careful is when you say, I know you click to discuss this, but before you, we can discuss this, I need to discuss that. And some channels do it like half as interesting does that so well. There are others where it's just like, this is not at all what I clicked on Bye. there's eight videos on what I clicked on on the side. So if it ever feels like I'm baiting and switching you or not delivering on the promise of the video, I just cut all that out, uh, no matter how interesting it is on its own. So these Nebula cuts, you said they're kind of like the director's cut. I don't know if you're repurposing them, but if you are, like, what advice would you have for someone who wanted to run that kind of strategy? Like, I'll keep my director's cuts over here. How would one access those? So you can do that in a variety of ways. Like some people do that on Patreon, you know, like they'll have an extended cut on Patreon or they'll put it behind the membership area on YouTube where they'll just upload the full version or they'll call it a bootleg. They'll, they'll even, some people even up, upload the unedited version. They're like, here's like, uh, or like interviews are great. Like I'll do interviews and they'll take 45 minutes to an hour. And that's not great. Uh, and often people repeat something over and over again. And repetition is death, like on YouTube. Like if you say the same thing over and over again, people remember it. Like you have to go quite a long time before you can earn a repetition on YouTube. Please don't take my word for any of this. Go watch like like Mr. Beast videos, David Dobrik videos, uh, Logan, like you can go see what a successful video looks like, like when you edit it. Any of that stuff, if you put that behind a paywall, there's this old term like an, an interface design. I used to be an interface designer. The deeper you go on like a web page or an app, the nerdier you can be because the people who want that are going to dig for it. But at the top layer, you've got to be super simple, super clear, super upfront, super apparent because they have zero patience for your nonsense. So I, I look at YouTube the same way. The video I put up on YouTube, I assume you have zero patience for my nonsense. You just want like the cleanest version, the best experience. But if you're going to go to like Nebula for me or Patreon for somebody else or the YouTube membership area, you're making a direct user action. It's like clicking that more button, that hamburger menu. And you're saying, I want more. You're going to be tolerant of that. So like, that's the perfect place for it. It's one tenth, 1% maybe of the views, but it's the people who are going to pay like 10 bucks a month or whatever to get those views. So you can service both those audiences. Nice. Okay. There is no way I can have you on a podcast and not talk to you about the way you title your video. Some of your video titles, I'm just like, whoa. Oh, somebody titled, we got like Apple destroying Facebook or WTF leak bomb or one of the videos that you uh, put out a while ago, the 40 to 80% lie uh, about the iPhone battery. How do you come up with the titles, Megan? These are tech YouTube titles, man. These are titles. These are like next level titles, man. So how do you come up with this stuff? <laughs> Uh, I mean, it's really hard because I have like two, I like an angel and a demon sitting on my <laughs> shoulders. And again, like the excuse I give myself is I'm making candy coated educational videos, but like most people won't watch them if I don't get you in the door. Like once you, once you click on it, it's my job to give you high value. But if you don't even click on it and traditionally like, uh, and I don't know if people know this, when you work in like a traditional journalist environment, you don't pick your own headings. There's like a headings editor that does all that. Like they write the titles. Almost never does the writer of the article write their own title. And there's people whose only job it is. And that's why like you'll see a title and you'll go, that is such BS. You know, it's nothing to do with the art. But it's like somebody's job to make sure that like if it bleeds, it leads. You know, they title it to get views. And YouTubers, we don't have this. We don't have a, like most of us don't have a separate ad department, don't have a separate titling department, don't have like an audience growth manager, all these things. So we have to like wear these hats. And on one side of me, I'm like, no, you have to give them like a very pedestrian headline that's very accurate. Like this is the MacBook you should buy. And then on the other side, you have like the little demon going, uh, don't buy this MacBook. You'll regret it for life. 
And then I try to land somewhere in between. I'm very worried about like creating excessive anxiety. So like I try to avoid, I still do them once in a while, but I try to avoid like the don't make a mistake headlines. Because I think at that point, you really are preying on anxiety. And especially like 2020 junior that we're living through right now, people have enough anxiety. But like you have like a few seconds to convert somebody. I forget what Netflix said. It was like 1.8 seconds to convert somebody uh, once they see your thumbnail and your title. And you want to keep it really simple. Like if you're Marquez, people are going to watch. Like he, he can just put like iPhone 12 review better than the last one. And people will click that like nobody's business. But otherwise, it's got to be compelling. And I know like Jimmy won't make a video if he doesn't know the thumbnail and the title and think that you know, 20 million people will click it. He won't even spend like a dollar on that video. I, we don't have that luxury in tech because the product is the product and you got to make that video. You know, you can't just, ah, I don't have a good thumbnail for this iPhone review. I'm just not going to do it. It's a very different beast for lack of a better word. But I try to think of a title that isn't a lie. Like I think, I'm going to back up for a second. Like clickbait is misunderstood. Some people think that anything that is interesting is clickbait and it's not. Like clickbait comes from bait and switch where I promise you one thing and I give you another. It's like back in the day of YouTube, everyone put that frame of the bikini model dead center in their video. So YouTube would display that no matter what the video was about. And like, that's not, so people would click on it and they would get Phil, like, you know, Phil D, Philly D for 20 minutes talking about something. I don't ever want to do that, but I'm not ashamed of putting like enticing thumbnails and, and titles. It's like Viper goes to Starbucks, you know, and it's in a prime location. He's not going to go to like this no name coffee shop behind the abandoned factory with no sign on it because that's the authentic artistic expression of coffee. <laughs> <laughs> you got that right. <laughs> like, yeah, it says world's best coffee on it. I'm going inside. So that's the way I think about it. Like what is the most attractive way I can package this video for the widest possible audience? And then I use, I use that as a title. I mean, you've done an incredible job though, man, because again, as we talked about before, in tech, it's hard because tech is inherently boring. So coming up with titles that are enticing enough to make somebody stop in their tracks and, uh, oh, let me watch that. That's an art form, man. You have it down to an amazing art form. So kudos to you. Woo. Again, in my old job in marketing, we always thought of three questions, like what it is, what it does, and why it matters. And I think like in YouTube, why it matters is the most important part. So like titling it based on what it is, boring, what it does, kind of boring, why it matters, super interesting. That's a really great way to think about it. I've been having my own internal struggle about a lot of the titles I've been doing lately. And it comes down to, so one of the recent examples, we, I think we've talked about on this podcast is the community tab update recently we got. It lets people with 500 subscribers upload to the community tab now or get the community tab rather. Before it was a thousand. And I, I had a choice. I could have made a video that said, hey, community tab update or whatever. And what performed a lot better and the title I originally wanted to do and went with was millions of creators just unlock this super vague because I personally love the community tab, but I know that most people don't appreciate it. And my goal there with that title was I need to make people appreciate this thing. And I know they're not going to click a video if it says the words community or tab on it. I just know they're not. Yeah. No, same thing. Like I, Apple's best new feature is a way better title than like how live text works. Yeah. The interesting thing about YouTube and the thing that keeps, you know, one of the things that still stresses me is the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. But on YouTube, it's also doing the same thing over and over again and expecting the same results because audiences grow and change and are seasonal and competition on your own videos and competition between your videos and other videos in your vertical and competition between your videos and other verticals, like videos and other verticals and your videos and other platforms is always shifting and changing. So like the title that works now 
I don't ever want to overuse it because then people will start to think, oh, it's like formulaic. But also it might be totally different in three months when people are watching TikTok more or watching political YouTube videos more or they're watching my review videos. And YouTube fascinates me. There's some neat tricks. Like if you go into advanced analytics and you say, how many videos did I publish this week? And what was the average view per viewer for those videos? And you look at other weeks with different video counts, you can start to see when am I saturating my audience? When are they choosing between the videos they want to watch? Or when am I feeding them? And, and they're happy to watch more videos. And you can start to see like, oh, at three videos a week, they're watching more videos. At four videos per week, they're choosing which video to watch. And then I'm basically wasting making that extra video. And like, you don't get that anywhere else. And you can see that like week after week after week, and you can use those to like constantly update your strategy. And I think that's endlessly interesting. Absolutely. Renee, you have been taking YouTube seriously, going hard on YouTube for about a year now. You are currently sitting at 294,000 subscribers, which is kind of crazy for you just doing it seriously for a year. So as a person who has made a very successful transition from the typical work corporate job to being a full-time YouTuber content creator, what is some advice that you would give other people that are looking to make the same transition or a similar transition? Like, what would you tell somebody thinking about doing YouTube full-time or wanting to go into it? Yeah, for sure. Well, first it's like, it's, it's a real job, you know, like people make fun of like you tell you're a YouTuber and it's sort of like you've got sand in your toes being a supermodel at the beach, but like, it's not, it's like a real job and it's a lot of real jobs. Like some people can build up big teams, but if you're starting, you're starting on you and it's a lot of work and you have to take it seriously and nobody owes you anything. Like, so I think some people think they're going to go on YouTube and they're like, I'm like, the algorithm's going to give me all these views. Uh, you know, everyone's going to love me the minute, they, the minute they see me. Maybe like there are some super charismatic people in this world, but there's a handful of them. Most of us got to work for a living. And I know like some people say, you know, I watch every movie that Brad Pitt is in. I'm going to, so they people watch every video that I'm in. Like there's a handful of actors and it's not even Brad Pitt anymore. Like his time is gone. Maybe it's one of the Chris's or, you know, maybe like there's like a handful of actors at any time that that's true for. Almost everyone else has to work for a living. And maybe you got to work at a coffee shop or a restaurant while you're trying to get your career going. Like nobody owes you anything. You've got to put in the work and you've got to work. You've got to figure out how to work smart rather than hard almost immediately because it is not easy and you can burn yourself out. So you, you've got to make sure that you're in this for the long game. So, you know, pick something that you think you can be consistent of and then make videos nobody else makes. Like, don't be the 37th Marquez Brownlee or the, you know, the, the 18, like 18th Mr. Beast because you don't have the budget for that. Like, you got to be the first you. You got to find the unique value that you can deliver. And then you've got to deliver that value consistently. And it's funny because we used to talk about this in blogging. It's really hard to hire good bloggers because you need to find somebody who can write, which is hard. Somebody who can write over and over again every day, which is really, really hard. And people who can like turn it around on a dime, like that's a, a fairly unique skill set. And it's the same thing for YouTube. Like you've got to be able to do it every week, sometimes multiple times a week, over and over again, probably for years, like, you know, hopefully... <laughs> for years. So just like go in with your white with your eyes open and get as smart as you can as fast as you can. Wow. Renee Ritchie dropping absolute fire on the tube talk podcast. Renee, where can the people go to follow you find you all that good stuff? Uh, I'm either really consistent or really boring depending on how you choose to see it because I'm just like slash Renee Ritchie. So like twitter.com slash Renee Ritchie, youtube.com slash Renee Ritchie. I'm on Vibe Drive, you know, whenever Viper lets me. Uh, so you can find me there too. It's always a lot of fun. Man, I appreciate you, Renee, coming on the podcast this week. Thank you very much, sir. Always awesome talking to you. Thank you guys for listening this week. 
Appreciate you all listening to another episode of Tube Talk for my man Dan. I am Viper, the man about tech. We will see you next week on another episode of Tube Talk. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Tube Talk brought to you by vidIQ. Head over to vidIQ.com slash Tube Talk for today's show notes and previous episodes. Enjoy the rest of your video making day.